sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would be brought to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your spirit which is poured out upon us at Pentecost. We're thankful for the Spirit's work throughout the history of the church. We're thankful for the Spirit's work in this place. We ask now, Lord, that you'd help us to hear, that you'd help us to understand, that you'd help us to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In January of 1994, two pastors, husband and wife, John and Carol Oates, you might be thinking a story that begins with a male and female pastor can't get much worse, but it does. It's a lot worse. Invited a man named Randy Clark to preach some revival sermons at their church in Toronto. They'd seen revivals all over the world, Argentina, South America, different places like that, and they wanted a revival. He came, and when he started preaching, there were 120 people, but this quickly swelled to over 1,000. He preached there, this man Randy Clark, for 60 days, and they were gathering six days a week for 12 and a half years at this place. People came from all over the world to be part of this Toronto blessing. There were great manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In particular, the congregation would roll around on the floor in uncontrollable laughter. And when Randy Clark was asked about this, he said it's the joy of the Holy Spirit. There were, of course, miraculous healings. Folks were slain in the Spirit. Some said they felt the electric waves of the Spirit move through them as they were in that place. Some of them would make animal noises, roaring like lions. Again, the pastor said this was proof of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And oddly enough, over 300 people claimed that they got gold and silver fillings in their teeth by the Holy Spirit while they were at these meetings. Might sound like a modern phenomenon, but you go back just a little bit further, and we have Charles Finney. And Finney felt like the Holy Spirit was something he could take and pull down. He could pull the lever. The Holy Spirit was like a machine. And Finney felt like if you just use duly constituted means, you could produce this revival. And so he pushed buttons and pulled levers to make people feel a certain thing in an effort to bring down the spirit. Go back a little bit further. During the time of Martin Luther, there were these three men called the Zwickau prophets. And they did not believe in the authority of scripture. They believed in the authority of revelations of the Holy Spirit from heaven. One of the distinctive features was they thought the end was near. This created all sorts of revolutionary violent action and eventually led to war. Okay, because they thought the, they were part of this group that eventually had part in a war in Germany during the time of Martin Luther. A little bit more humorous story about the Holy Spirit is during the time of John Calvin, there was a widow. I'm glad no one's in the front row for this story here. There was a widow who sat in the front row of one of the churches in Calvin's Geneva and would make eyes at the minister, wink at him, blow him kisses, all sorts of things like this, okay? Well, eventually the pastor's like, listen, this is really, really distracting. We need to bring her in and figure out what's going on. So they brought the woman in, and they asked her, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And she said, well, the Holy Spirit has told me I'm going to marry this man. 
And consistory's like, no, he hasn't. <laughs> go to a different church. They made him leave the church and go to a different church. Okay? Throughout the history of the church, the Holy Spirit has been one of the, a common excuse for some of the strangest, oddest behavior. Sometimes just weird, like that woman. Sometimes heretical, sinful, dangerous behavior. Why is this? Many feel the Holy Spirit is to be found through mystical, magical, abnormal human experiences. Our experience of the Holy Spirit, we're told, is to come outside of what is normal, outside of what is natural. But is this true? Does the Spirit work through extraordinary channels? Or does the Spirit work through ordinary channels? How will we know when the Spirit is here in this place? How do we know? Do we need people rolling around the floor? How will you know you're supposed to marry that woman? Do you need the Holy Spirit to talk to you? Like that widow thought? How do we know? What are the signs? What is the guarantee that the Spirit is here and the Spirit is working? Well, the answer today is found in our text, found in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. It's odd. Pastor Garner told me, Peter, May 28th is uh, Pentecost Sunday. I thought, well, I better come up with a Pentecost text. So I went to my text that I was planning on preaching. And guess what? It is a Pentecost text. Maybe the Holy Spirit does work. He did work. He led us here to this text. That's where he led us, and it's magnificent, okay? So we're going to look at this text. We're going to look at verses 10 through 11 and 12, and I'm going to close with some um, answering that question. I'm going to close by answering that question of where do we find the Holy Spirit and how does the Holy Spirit work? So Peter has begun his letter by reminding his readers of the great salvation that's been brought to them by Christ. The Bible typically functions in a because God has done this, therefore do this fashion, okay? Because God has created you, therefore act this way. Because God has led you out of Egypt, therefore obey the Ten Commandments. Because this has happened, therefore that. Okay, and this is every book in the New Testament functions this way. Because the kingdom has come, therefore do this. Okay, and that's all Peter's doing. Peter's beginning his book, the first 12 verses, cover this great salvation we have in Christ. Of course, he brings it up throughout the rest of the book as well. But it covers this great salvation we have in Christ. And he then goes on to say, okay, because you have this great salvation, because you are Christians, Therefore, this is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to function. This is what you're supposed to believe. This is how you're supposed to uh, respond to different situations. Uh, this is those sort of things, okay? So our beliefs, our emotions, and our deeds are shaped by the great salvation that God has brought to us. And these verses are doing that exact thing. Paul, Peter is telling us about this great salvation. He's expanding upon this great salvation that's been brought to us. It's a little different, though, because he's going backwards, He's not just talking about what we have and what we will have, which is kind of what he's done in the first uh, nine verses, but he's going backwards into the Old Testament. Okay? And he says, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So this great salvation, mentioned in verse 9, he says, This salvation the prophets searched. And the word there is very strong. They diligently labored. They wanted to figure out when this Christ would come. When he would come and suffer, when he would enter into glory. They were looking for an indication of time. Okay, and later on in verse 12, Peter tells us it was revealed to them. They knew, the prophets knew, that it was not going to happen in their time. It would happen later, our time. And Hebrews says something very similar to that at the end of Hebrews 11, where it says, we are not made perfect apart from them, or they were not made perfect apart from us. Okay, so this is kind of the theme that Peter's building upon and trying to explain to us this great salvation, all right? And I want to bring three points out of verses 10 and 11. First, many Christians today would argue that the Old Testament men knew very little of Jesus, okay? 
The Old Testament was just, just shadows of Jesus. Okay? Didn't know a lot about him. Kind of like it's all a mystery. It was all veiled. They said things they really didn't understand. Okay? You don't even hear people say that. They said things they really didn't understand. All right. Well, this text indicates actually exactly the opposite. And the New Testament indicates exactly the opposite. Those Old Testament saints knew a lot about Jesus. They just know vague shadows. They knew specifically that he would suffer and that he would enter into glory. They knew this, and they wanted to know when it was going to happen. The Old New Testament is filled with this idea that the, that the Old Testament saints knew about the Messiah. They knew when he would suffer. They knew he would suffer, and they knew he would enter into glory. The New Testament writers were constantly accused of teaching something different than the Old Testament faith. Okay, you go through Acts, this is one of the accusations leveled against Paul and Peter and those guys. You're different. You're teaching something different than what the Old Testament saw, taught. And Paul and Peter are like, no, we're not. We're teaching exactly the same thing. Okay, so I want to unload a few texts on you here showing this, that the Old Testament saints knew and understood that Jesus, that there would be a Messiah, he would suffer, he would enter into glory. Okay, not just vague things, specific things. Okay, so just a few texts here. John 8, 56 says, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced, and the word there is jumped for joy. Now, this is the same word I talked about in my last sermon. Okay, if you remember that, doubt you do. But my last sermon, okay, jumped for joy. It's a rare word in the New Testament, only used a few times. Abraham wasn't just kind of excited about Jesus' day. He jumped for joy at Jesus' day. Luke 9, verses 30 through 31, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Luke says they talk about something. What do they talk about? What do Moses and Elijah talk about with Jesus? His decease, his departure, his coming death. Moses and Elijah knew. They knew the Messiah was going to come and suffer and die. It was not a surprise, not a shock. Matthew 13, 17, Jesus says, Many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Many long to see this day. Not just a few. Luke 24, which I feel like comes up every sermon I preach. I feel like Luke 24. Just a great passage. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He's talking to these men, and these men don't get it. Okay, they don't get it. Okay, they don't understand why Jesus had to die. It's kind of, they, they don't like that idea. And Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things that entered into glory? That sounds exactly like our text. I wonder if Peter was actually echoing that, those words of Jesus from Luke 24. Okay? And then Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus didn't like just tell them. He went back to the Old Testament and said, listen, this is what's been going on from the beginning, from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. This is what it was taught. I had to suffer. I had to die. I had to enter into glory. Acts 26, Paul is accused of teaching something other than the true faith. Okay, he's saying, you're not, you're not teaching the true faith, Paul. This is what Paul says. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said must come to pass. Think of other passages, Psalm 22. If you know Psalm 22 very well, Psalm 22 is quoted on the cross. Jesus quotes it. The first part of Psalm 22 is all about death. The bulls of Bashan surround him. He's thirsty. His bones you can count. How does Psalm 22 end? 
with victory and glory. Jesus reigning over the nations, all the families coming to worship Jesus. Isaiah 53, the same exact idea. Okay? We think of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant, but at the end it says he will divide the spoil with the strong. So all throughout the Old Testament, okay, you have this picture of this suffering Messiah and this coming glory. This is not something new to the New Testament. Okay? Now, something that just appeared. And this is why Jesus gets upset with people. This is why he gets mad. This is why Paul gets mad. It's like, you guys should know better. Okay? It's all been written before. It's all there. Okay? They knew that Christ was coming. They knew he would have to suffer and die. They knew he would enter into glory. They knew about the Gentiles coming in. Notice what Paul says there in Acts 26. I'm preaching what Moses and the prophets said. And what is part of that? The light coming to the Gentiles. They longed to see Jesus. They understood the, and the point I want you to get from this is the Old Testament is thoroughly Christian. Okay? It is not sub-Christian. It's not even pre-Christian. It is thoroughly Christian. It does not belong to the Jews. It belongs to us as followers of Jesus Christ as the true seed of Abraham. And this is what Peter is saying in this passage. He's trying to help his readers understand this salvation is not new. Okay? It has been promised, and the prophets long to look into it. They desired to see it. They searched carefully. Whenever I see that, read this passage, I think of the scribes in the time of Jesus and the wise men come. The wise men come, and think about these scribes. These are guys who studied scripture, who knew the text, they knew all the data, okay, they knew everything. They were very wise when it comes to understanding the text. And these wise men show up, whether there were three or more, we don't know, probably not three. But anyway, the wise men show up, and they say, listen, the Messiah's here. Now imagine, you're a guy who's been waiting, supposedly, waiting for this Messiah your entire life, okay? Been wait the Jews have been waiting for centuries, millennia, for this Messiah. And the wise men show up and say, hey, we heard this Messiah is born, and we want to go visit him. And they're like, okay, we'll tell you where, Bethlehem. And then they just stay there. They just stay there. They don't go, okay? And a lot of times we're like this. We have all this great salvation. And this is what Peter's emphasizing. You have this great salvation that the prophets long to look into. Don't just be like, meh, <laughs> like the scribes. Oh, meh. Okay, you guys, go visit. you guys go visit Jesus in Bethlehem. We're going to stay here and keep reading about Jesus instead of visiting Jesus and seeing him. Okay? This great salvation has now arrived. And it's easy for us to take it for granted. It's just easy. It is. Okay? The prophets didn't. The prophets wanted to see they wanted to look. They wanted to know when it was going to happen. Okay, so just don't despise the great salvation. Christ is this great treasure. And this is part of the point Peter's making. Christ is this great and magnificent treasure. We are to rejoice and delight in it more than they did even. Okay? We have received it. We have seen it. We have heard it. Okay? So that's the first thing. The Old Testament saints knew far more than we give them credit for. And the Old Testament is a thoroughly Christian book. It's not something pre-Christian or sub-Christian. It belongs to us. Jesus is there all over the place. Okay? And the prophets knew Jesus was there. They saw him and they understood it. Okay? Second thing is, we need to realize that the Spirit is far, was far more active in the Old Testament than we often think. The Spirit is far more active in the Old Testament than we often think. We tend to view the Spirit as a New Testament phenomenon shows up at Pentecost. Before that, maybe shows up at Jesus' baptism. But really, the Spirit is not really active in the Old Testament, not really all over the Old Testament. But as you study, and if you know your Bible well, and you start reading these passages, you realize the Spirit is everywhere. 
in the Old Testament. This is part of Peter's point here. The Spirit of Christ was in those prophets. Okay, so let's look at some of the Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament. Okay, and he shows up possibly three times in the first couple chapters of Genesis. First, obviously, he's hovering over the waters of the new creation. The Spirit hovers over the waters. And the Spirit is the one who acts to create and make things new. So he's hovering over the waters. Adam gets the breath, the Spirit of life blown into him. Okay. The third instance of the use of the word Spirit is an interesting one, and I'm not sure what to make of it, but I want to bring it to your attention. After Adam and Eve sin, it, it is said that God comes to them in the cool of the day. The cool of the day. Well, the word cool there is ruach, which is the Hebrew word for spirit. Okay? Spirit. And this is the only place in the Old Testament that word is translated as cool. It's kind of not cool. Why did they do that? Right, why did they translate that way? I'm not sure. But the spirit is there in Genesis 3, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. So from the very beginning, there is the spirit. Genesis 41, 38, Pharaoh says of Joseph, here is a man in whom is the Spirit of God. Pharaoh recognized the Spirit of God in Joseph. Exodus 31.3, Bezalel is filled with the Spirit of God, so he meant oversee the building of the temple. Okay? And the Spirit is particularly interested in building up the church. Okay? The Spirit and the church are connected to one another. Even in our creed, the, spirit, the work of the church comes after the Spirit. Not that Jesus has nothing to do with it, obviously, but it is the unique work of the Spirit to build up the church. And here we have a man filled with the Spirit to build the tabernacle. In Numbers 11, it is said the Spirit came down upon the 70 elders and they prophesied. Joshua complains. Moses, this isn't right. Why are they prophesying? And what does Moses say? He says, oh, that all of Yahweh's people were prophets and he would put his Spirit upon them all. Moses wanted to see Pentecost. That's what that's saying in Numbers 11. Moses wanted to see Pentecost, wanted to see the Spirit poured out on everyone. Deuteronomy 34, Joshua is filled with the spirit of wisdom as Moses passes on his work to Joshua. Who is the most spirit-filled man in the Old Testament? Some of you might know the answer to this question. Samson. Four times it is said that the spirit rushes upon Samson. Four times. Make of that what you will. That's an interesting connection there. We don't think of Samson as a spirit-filled man, unless you've read Jordan, then you might. But you don't think of Samson as a spirit-filled man. But four times it is said the Spirit rushes upon Samson as he does his work. The Spirit comes upon Saul, leaves Saul, comes upon David. And then Psalm 51, David prays the Spirit would not leave him. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. In 2 Chronicles 20, a prophet is filled with the Spirit and brings Israel news of their deliverance. Isaiah and Ezekiel are filled with the Spirit. Isaiah emphasizes more the coming Spirit. Ezekiel, though, is always being moved with the Spirit. The Spirit enters me. The Spirit filled me. The Spirit took me and moved me from here to there. Go through Ezekiel sometime and just highlight every time the Spirit shows up over and over and over again, kind of like Revelation. Okay? And then, of course, in Ezekiel 37, the Spirit carries Ezekiel out and fills the, gives him the vision of the dead bones, and the Spirit comes in to those dead bones and gives them new life. Okay? So the Spirit is all... And I, the word ruach, the word Hebrew word for spirit, is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Now, sometimes it just means wind. Sometimes it means the spirit of a man. Okay? But the word is used hundreds of times. And the Holy Spirit is all over the Old Testament. So just like the Old Testament is a Christ-centered Christian book, the Old Testament is also a spirit-filled book. Okay? The spirit doesn't just 
show up at Pentecost and is absent before that. He is all throughout the Old Testament. And this is what Peter is saying. Okay? These prophets had the Spirit of Christ who was telling them what to say, and, and they were asking him, when is this going to happen? When is this going to occur? So one mistake we make when we think about the Holy Spirit, one mistake we make is we assume that the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to regenerate us, okay? to give us new hearts, take out our, our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Okay? This is how we think about it. And the Spirit does do that. The Westminster Larger Catechism says justifying faith, that is regenerating, saving faith, is wrought in us by the Spirit and the Word of God. And I would tweak that a little bit and say it's wrought in us by the Spirit through the Word of God. Okay, So the Spirit does give us new faith. The Spirit does regenerate, does change our hearts. Okay? But that is not all the Spirit does. And often we get so zeroed in on this that we miss certain things. Think about this for a minute. When the Spirit comes, along Bezalel, comes upon Bezalel, okay? when he comes upon Bezalel, is he saving Bezalel? Is Bezalel outside the people of God and now he's being brought into the people of God? Well, no. Bezalel is already part of the people of God. So why is the Spirit coming upon him? Is this the second blessing of the Spirit? Okay, that's what Finney thought. Second blessing of the Spirit? It's not that. Okay, what about the 70 men, the 70 um, elders up, in, up on top of the mountain? When the Spirit comes upon them and they start prophesying, is that because they need to be saved? Okay. The answer obviously is no. Okay, when the Spirit of wisdom comes upon Joshua, when Moses is transitioning out and Moses is about to die, and the Spirit comes upon Joshua, does Joshua need to be saved? Well, no. That's not what's happening at all. The Spirit comes upon men to prepare them to do a specific work. Okay? And Saul and David are the great example of this. We see the Spirit upon Saul, and then the Spirit leaves Saul, and the Spirit comes to David. And then David prays in Psalm 51 that the Spirit would not leave him. Take not your spirit from me. What is happening there? The Saul saved, and then Saul not saved, and then David saved, and then David's praying that he will not lose his salvation? No, that's not what's happening there. The Spirit was given to Saul so Saul might do the job of being a good king. That's why he was given to him. When Saul rebelled, the Spirit was taken. That doesn't have to do with salvation. I mean, we can discuss that, but that's not the point. The point is the Spirit was taken because Saul rebelled. The Spirit was taken from him so he was no longer anointed to do the job. Now David is praying in Psalm 51, Lord, do not let that happen to me. He's not praying that he won't lose his salvation. He's not worried about that. That's not the concern in Psalm 51. And in Pentecost, this is exactly the point. Those men and women gathered in the upper room are not, they don't need to be saved. When the tongues of fire come down, they're not becoming Christians. That's not what's happening. They're already believers in Jesus. So what is happening at Pentecost? They are being prepared to do a job. They're being prepared to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth and take the gospel. They're being prepared for a mission. And we have something very similar to this when we do an ordination service. Okay? When, we do, when we ordain a pastor or an elder or a deacon, we lay hands on them. And we pray, Lord, fill them with your spirit. I hope we're not praying, Lord, convert them. I hope that's not what we're praying, right? We're praying, Lord, fill them with your spirit so they can do this task. Prepare them to do the task. And the spirit doesn't come upon them in some magical, mystical, wild way. He comes upon them normally. And they work normally. So part of what you have to understand when you're reading about the Spirit is what is being talked about in the passage. Is, it being, is what being talked about salvation? And sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Or is it being talked about being filled for a specific task? Okay. And often, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New, that is the case. 
The Spirit is filling them to do a specific tax, not, not saving them. And in baptism, we get both, okay? In baptism, we're praying the child or the adult will be regenerated. We're praying that God would do a good work in their hearts by the Spirit. We're also praying the Spirit would prepare them for the task he has for them, okay? So the Old Testament is thoroughly Christian, and the Old Testament is thoroughly Spirit-filled. The same Spirit who accompanied the prophets in the Old Testament also accompanies the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament, okay? And this is part of Peter's point. He's trying to emphasize the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? And there are some discontinuities, but in this passage, he's emphasizing the continuity, especially of this salvation, all right? So the Old Testament saints knew far more than we give them credit for. The Old Testament saints were filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit was active all throughout the Old Testament, okay? And the third thing I want to see from verses 10 through 12 is this pattern of suffering and glory, okay? This might be the theme of 1 Peter. And it's maybe the theme of the New Testament, honestly. It's one of the great themes of the New Testament is that Jesus had to suffer and enter into glory. And it is a pattern. It is a, he is an example for us. Peter says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you are called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. So Jesus is an example for us, but it's not just that. It's not just that. If you see a friend who's suffering faithfully, you can gain courage and strength from that, but that friend's suffering does not have an impact upon you directly. Okay. So it's not just, but with Jesus, it's not just a pattern, but it's about the person. Jesus' suffering allows us to enter into glory. So it's not just he's an example for us, okay? He is the one who suffered and gets us into glory, okay? Hebrews emphasizes this over and over again. We can only go so far with the Old Testament with the sacrifices, with the priesthood. Okay. Now we have a better offering, a better priesthood, better promises. Jesus' throne opened the door to glory by his suffering. Okay. Jesus' thrown open the door to glory by his suffering. So it's not just an example. He is an example, but it's not just an example. Okay. It's not just that he has walked through himself, but we have walked through with him. We're united to him, and we have entered into glory. And this is part of Peter's point. Okay. We are there already. This great salvation is ours already. This glory is ours already, okay? This is not just about a glory that we might get. It's about glory that we already have in Jesus Christ, okay? So we can suffer with joy and patience because of Jesus. Suffering for us is not some terrible, awful interruption in our lives, and that's often how we view it. It is the very path God has given to bring us to glory. It is not us earning glory. It is us being united to Christ, Handling our suffering in a way that honors Jesus is one of the ways we enter into that glory. Okay, so this is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this is a theme of Peter. I've already talked about it quite a bit in previous sermons, and it'll come up over and over and over again throughout 1 Peter. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but just don't miss the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ are what the prophets long to look into. They understood this. And Jesus on Luke 24, that's what he emphasizes. The Son of Man had to suffer and enter into glory. Okay, this is the pattern, but not just the pattern. This is the way, okay? So, verse 12. So those verses 10 and 11, verse 12. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Verse 12 is the culmination of the argument. This great salvation preached by the, by the Spirit, by Spirit-filled prophets, a salvation that told of Jesus, his suffering and his glory, a salvation that the prophets investigated thoroughly and longed to see, 
it has arrived. It has arrived. Okay? And there's not a, not a whole lot of things in our lives we wait a long time for. Some of you might have had to wait a long time to get married. Especially there's not a whole lot of things in our lives where everybody's waiting on it. Okay? And the only thing that came to my mind when I was thinking about this was the uh, wedding of Princess Diana. I was pretty uh, still young, but I remember the wedding of Princess Diana. And it seemed like the entire world was waiting for this. Everybody was watching, okay, struck by this young, kind of not royal girl marrying this prince. And they all waited, I don't know how long they waited, a year maybe, whatever. But for us, okay, this great salvation, which was thousands of years in the making, that Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, this great salvation that they long to see has arrived. It is here. And this is Peter's point. And this is Jesus' point in Matthew 13. Don't you understand what has come? Don't you understand what has shown up? The glorious kingdom of Jesus. Do we value this great salvation as we ought to? Does this great salvation shape our lives day in and day out? Are we thoroughly acquainted with Christ as we ought to be? Do we search diligently like the prophets? Are we kind of like, oh, I know all about that. I know all about that. Don't need to worry about searching. That. And the answer is we need to dig in. We need to shape our lives by it. We need to have a clear understanding. It's interesting, the passage begins and ends with men looking into this. Well, men and angels. It begins with the prophet searching, and it ends with the angels looking, okay? Do we long to look into this great salvation like the prophets, like the angels? Or has it become dull to us? We've heard it so many times. Jesus, yeah, Jesus, the great treasure of the kingdom, yeah. The mustard seed, we've heard all that so many times, now we're just kind of dull to it. Peter's trying to wake them up and shake them up and say, listen, this is what those men looked for. This is what those men long for. Don't despise it. Don't despise it. Right. Now let's return to our question at the beginning. Where is the Spirit? And the Spirit's mentioned twice in this passage. In 2 Kings 5, there's a general in the Syrian army. His name is Naaman. Naaman is a mighty man. Don't forget that. He is a mighty man. He's not just some you know, private down here. He is way up the chain, way up the chain. And he has defeated Israel and we know this because he has an Israelite servant girl, okay? But Naaman has leprosy. Naaman has leprosy. And the servant girl comes to him and says, there's this prophet, Elisha, and he can heal your leprosy. Okay, so Naaman goes to his commanding officer and says, I want to go get healed. Can you let me go? And the, prophet, uh, the commanding officer is like, sure. So Naaman gets all this money and all this stuff together, and he goes to Elisha, goes to Israel. Now, there's an interesting side story here where the king of Israel does not believe Elisha can heal the leprosy. King of Israel tears his clothes and says, what is this? I can't do this thing. So the servant girl believes, Naaman believes, the king of Israel does not believe, okay? Anyway, Naaman comes to Elisha's house. Now imagine, you're an important person, okay? Important person, and you're coming to an important person, okay? Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He doesn't even show up. He's like, yeah, well, I'll send my messenger. I'm gonna send my little servant guy out there. He's gonna go talk to, go talk to Naaman. The servant guy comes out and says, you know what? Go bathe in the Jordan seven times and you will be cleansed. And this is what Naaman says. Indeed, I see, he gets furious, the word says. Furious. And he says to myself, I said, indeed, I said to myself, he, Elisha, will surely come out to me and he will stand and he will call on the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and heal my leprosy. Are not the rivers in Syria better than all the rivers in Israel? His servants tell him, Naaman, don't be stupid. 
<laughs> you have leprosy. Don't be stupid, Naaman. Go bathe in the Jordan. So Naaman does go bathe in the Jordan, and his flesh becomes like that of a little child. Then he tries to pay Elisha for it, and Elisha refuses money, and Gazi, his servant, goes and takes the money, and all that sort of stuff. But the point is, there's a little bit of Naaman in all of us. We want the Spirit to make a fuss over us. We want things to be dramatic. We want things to be amazing. Okay, there's a little bit of that in all of us. Okay? But God does not work. The Spirit does not work through grand displays, grand ceremonies. And by grand, I mean not that they're not important, but they're not grand in the eyes of the world. See, Naaman had a worldly vision. Okay? He had a worldly vision of what greatness was. We all want something amazing and magical. We all want the hand-waving. We all want God to make a big fuss over us. Maybe it isn't laughing. After all, we're Presbyterians. Laughing fits may not be our grace and temptation. Maybe it's hearing the Spirit when we pray. Lord, I really want to hear your Spirit. Speak to me while I pray. Talk to me, Lord. Or maybe it's coming in here and wanting an emotional high. Okay? Coming here, we want to feel something. Okay? In our passage, where is the Spirit? The Spirit is in the preaching of the prophets in the Old Testament and the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. And the point I want you to get this morning on Pentecost Sunday is that the Spirit works through the ordinary means of grace every single time. No exceptions. Okay? Doesn't matter whether you feel like he is. Doesn't matter whether you feel a little pitter-patter in your heart or not. Doesn't matter whether you leave the service with some emotional high. Okay? That is irrelevant. Every time the word is preached, the Spirit is there. Every time a baby is baptized, the Spirit is there. Every time we eat and drink, the Spirit is there. Every single time, no exceptions. The Lord does not give us great, huge ceremonies. The Lord doesn't give us emotional, whatever the laughing is, whatever that was, okay? The Lord gives us bread and wine and water and the word, okay? So we need to firmly, steadfastly trust in these means of grace. We don't need to look for something else. When you come in here on Sunday morning, when you read the word to your kids, when your children are baptized, when they eat and drink at the table, you need to believe the Spirit is working because that is what He has promised to do every single time. Where do we find the Spirit? We find Him in the ordinary means of grace. Not laughter, not in our hearts, not an anxious bench of any, but in the word, water, bread, and wine. This morning, that's what I want us to get from the Pentecost sermon. I want you to understand that. It is faith that God promises. It is faith. It is our faith that we need to believe that God promises to be true to this every single time. Okay, so do not doubt. That's my encouragement. Do not doubt. Okay, you look at other services, you're like, wow, they have all these cool things. Somebody told me right before the service that some churches at Pentecost have red balloons in the ceiling and they drop them down as like a, a, the spirit coming down. I mean, really? I mean, really? We don't need that. We don't need that. We have the word. We have the water. We have the bread. We have the wine. And we have the spirit. And that's all we need. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful and thankful for your spirit. We're grateful and thankful for the work. We're grateful and thankful for these ordinary means of grace. Give us hearts to believe that all the great things you've promised, this great salvation that you've promised to us in Jesus is given in these ordinary things. Help us to believe that and trust that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.